Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, Archaeology Podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips, we have trainings, exercise, we do research, and in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Welcome to Episode 70 of your Rock Art Podcast. We are blessed and honored to have Professor John Upps from the University of Kansas, who's going to be talking about his work in the far Central America and uppermost South America, both from an artifact standpoint and uh, also the indigenous theology and just what some of these uh, animal human figures might mean. Come along for a wonderful ride. Well, welcome, everybody. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and this is uh, your Rock Hard podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network. And this is episode 70, and we're uh, blessed and honored to have John, Professor John Hoops, who is uh, going to share his insights, wisdom, and reflections on uh, his career related to both archaeology, anthropology, the study of shamanism, art, and uh, the implications for uh, ritual, ceremony, and the uh, theological world of indigenous people. John, are you with us? Yes, I am. Thanks so much for having me here, Alan. Oh, well, God bless you for coming on board and, and bringing your your background and prestige. So, John, you, you just published a couple of books you were telling me. Tell the listeners a bit about those, would you? Yes, they, it was, it was uh, I, I don't know whether the uh, analogy of birthing a baby is, is fair because I have never done and never will do that. But uh, yes, I just produced two books that were a long time in the making. They took about seven years from conception to publication. And they've been published by Dumbarton Oaks in Washington, D.C. They're being distributed by Harvard University Press. And they really represent labors of love in the area that I specialize in, the Ismo-Colombian area of Southern Central America and Northern South America. 
The first book is titled Pre-Columbian Art from Central America and Colombia at Dumbarton Oaks. It's the fifth in a series of catalogs of objects that are in the collection at Dumbarton Oaks, and I can talk about that in a little bit. But uh, essentially, the the core of the book is uh, photographs and detailed descriptions and interpretations of over 200 pre-Columbian objects that were manufactured in the area uh, between Colombia and Ecuador, the vast majority of them coming Costa Rica, Panama, and Colombia. And most of these objects are made out of precious materials, in particular jadeite and gold, as well as alloys of gold. And in addition to the over 200 objects that we describe and and illustrate and interpret and and kind of place within their cultural context, there are also about 15 thematic essays that cover everything from uh, methods of working jadeite and methods of casting gold to interpretations of particular archaeological contexts in 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 Panama and uh, and Colombia and, and elsewhere. The second book is titled actually has a very similar title, and I I always have to check and see what the titles are to make sure I don't get them confused. But the second one is called Pre-Columbian Central America, Colombia, and Ecuador towards an integrated approach, and it was originally conceived of as part of the first volume, but ultimately we we had so much content that we had to split it into two books, together about 1,200 pages uh, in in total. And uh, it contains, as I said, uh, 20 thematic essays on the archaeology of the area uh, between, actually, uh, it it deals with Honduras all the way down to to Ecuador. And what do those artifacts date to? What are they, uh, the beginning and sort of they work up to the... uh contemporary times or historic period? Well, the, they, they cover a fairly long period of time, approximately 2,000 years. I would say the earliest objects that we have, which are made out of jadeite, date back probably to about 500 BC. Okay. The most recent objects, which would be ones made out of gold, are very similar to ones that were reported by Spanish eyewitnesses uh, mm-hmm. when they arrived in Costa Rica and Panama. So we know that objects like these were being made and used uh, at the time of the arrival of the Spanish in the early 1500s. So that's about 2,000 years of objects, the earliest being made out of Prussian stones and the more recent ones made out of gold. And I guess to the um, listenership of our podcast, the relationship of those to some of the subject matter that we deal with regularly here is these are uh, often ritual, ceremonial objects that have a great import and character and are used by ritualists or uh, religious adepts. Some use the term uh, shamans or priests, etc. Am I correct? Uh, yes, I think that probably is correct. All of the objects are what we might put into the category of, of jewelry. They're objects mm-hmm. of personal adornment, things that are, that are made either to be worn around the neck or suspended from the ears or perhaps placed uh, around the waist or in a headdress or worn on the chest. All of them are objects that are intended for public display as part of the regalia worn by an important person. And, you know, the term ritual is quite broad. Uh, I was just going to say that these persons, it's very difficult to put them into particular categories. They have they can have political significance. They could they could have been warriors or they could be shamans. So there's certainly a range of religious personalities that are part and parcel of these objects. And the objects themselves, as I understand it, and I think we spoke about this very briefly, sometimes depict uh, some of these 
supramundane beings, part of the religious elements or deities or supernatural beings that would be part of the cosmology. Is that correct to, to describe this? That's absolutely true. The vast, the vast majority of these objects are decorated with abstract to fairly realistic representations mm-hmm. of animals that would have been very important to think as well as to, to look at. And actually things that are good to think, that's a good anthropological Yes, no, phrase. I like that. Yeah, I've used that before. So they're semiotically fertile Yes, yes, I love representations yeah. that include animals that would have been especially meaningful. And because of that, they give us some insight into what their cosmology might have been. Fantastic. So I always want to contextualize when I meet someone like you, John, to talk about at least how do you, your, your personal journey of how you ended up uh, in this rather esoteric yet endlessly engaging subject. So perhaps you can give us at least a thumbnail picture of how you got to be a professor at the University of Kansas, specializing in this rather remarkable subject matter. Well, it's interesting that you were used the word esoteric, Alan, because I think I was always in pursuit of of the esoteric. Uh, I was a little, I was I was a bit of a nerd when I was in grade school and and, and high school, and for me, uh, reading about archaeology and reading about these exotic and distant and ancient peoples and places. I think it's probably fair to say it was kind of a form of escapism. I was very much into science fiction and fantasy literature. I was also reading quite a lot of early 70s, what we might now refer to as pseudo-archaeology, including mm-hmm. Eric Von Daniken and uh, Ignatius Donnelly on the Atlantis and, and all kinds of things. But I was very much in pursuit uh, of the weird, of the exotic, of the unusual, and I found it really kind of wonderful for myself to know about things that nobody else knew anything about. Uh, <laughs> so I tended to pursue those things that seemed to be the, the weird corners of knowledge that, that that relatively few people went into, just so that I could become nerdy about them. Yeah, so we major on the minors, correct? We sort of deal with the uh, esoteric, the supernatural, and, and those areas of well, that's that. absolutely true, and I, I read quite a bit on, 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 on the occult and on the supernatural. Yep. Uh, I really enjoyed reading a lot about religion, but I knew that I wanted to be an archaeologist even before I applied to college, wow. and I was fortunate enough to, to, to go to a place that actually had just created uh, a, an undergraduate major in archaeology that was uh, started by uh, Irving Rouse, an archaeologist at Yale University, uh, mm-hmm. who created a multidisciplinary major in archaeology because he was persuaded that archaeology was transdisciplinary, which I I think many of us have have realized, that it it drew upon expertise that ranged from anthropology to classics to Near Eastern studies to art history to history. And so my program was very much a multidisciplinary program, and uh, I really enjoyed that quite a lot. In fact, I took lots more archaeology classes than I did anthropology, and then realized when I got to graduate school that I had some catching up to do. So I actually studied more broadly in anthropology in graduate school than I than I had as an undergrad, which is kind of the reverse of what a lot of people experience. Gotcha. Um, but I did my graduate work at Harvard, where I was fortunate to be able to work with some, some truly inspirational individuals, including Gordon Willey, who was my dissertation advisor. And uh, I ha- had the distinction of being being the last of Gordon Willey's 
dissertation advisees. That's, he had a, a very long and distinguished career. I'm, I'm sure his name is known to most of your listeners. Oh, yeah. But it was really pretty remarkable to me that some of his first students included some of my mentors, like Michael Coe, mm-hmm. and that he was still teaching on into the into the 1980s. I finished my PhD in 1987. Fantastic. So given that uh, interesting academic journal, where did you uh, jump into and where was, where was your fieldwork concentrated and sort of how did you get involved with this particular geographical specialization? Well, it, it may sound kind of odd, Alan, but it was, it was kind of an accident. <laughs> Join the club. Join the club. Yeah. I, I was very interested in, in the ancient Mayas in particular and also very interested in Mesoamerica. And we had the option as undergraduates to either enroll in an accredited archaeological field school or to join an archaeological research project and to complete our fieldwork requirement that way. So I went to my advisor, and who at the time was Michael Coe, uh, a specialist in the ancient Mayas and, and mm-hmm. Olmec and Mesoamerica. Sure. And I said, to him, I'm really interested in doing fieldwork in Central America, not realizing that for Michael Coe and also for many other Mesoamericanists, when they think of Central America, they don't immediately think about Guatemala and Honduras. They, they often think about areas farther to the south. And so on that particular day, Michael Coe said, oh, I just got this wonderful package in the mail from an archaeologist in Costa Rica. Uh, <laughs> he's finding some amazing things. Uh, why don't you write to him and see whether he has an opportunity for you? And I, I really had had my heart set on working in the Maya area, but uh-huh. I, for whatever reason, wasn't connecting with the right person. And I wrote to Michael Snarskis, who was an archaeologist, uh, an American archaeologist working in Costa Rica. And he wrote back a a, a wonderful invitation. He said, if you can get an airfare to get down here, I will pay for all of your other expenses. Uh, Just just get here and I'll I'll, I'll house you and feed you. And you can you can work on this project that I have in Costa Rica. Yeah, that's wonderful. So I thought that was great. And that's how you kicked it off. Yeah. Well, I, I, I had. I had no savings at the time. I applied for a um, nothing, nothing, nothing. I, I applied for a, an undergraduate research grant, which gave me eight hundred dollars, and that was my total budget for what wound up being almost three months in Costa Rica. Wow! I think you could easily spend that in a couple of days in Costa Rica these days, yeah. but yeah. but I, I lived very much on the cheap, out of a backpack, literally out of a backpack. And it wound up being very much a, an ethnographic experience as well, because it turned out the, the archaeological site we, that we were excavating, um, the closest that you could get to it with a four-wheel drive vehicle was about two kilometers away. Mm. So we, we drove our Land Rover as, as far as we could and then parked it and then hiked for two kilometers into this location where basically there was no electricity no running water, uh, a ramshackle shack that we, we slept in. And I was just in heaven. I thought it was the greatest thing. I was out in the middle of nowhere. Fantastic. And uh, having someone on, and actually I, I can admit this now because we're, we're, we're now almost at ubiquitous legality. But one of the greatest things about it is that one of the guys on our work crew um, was the local cannabis dealer. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this was 1978. And so we would we would kick back after a, after a day on the dig and um, you know just enjoy the rainfall. That's wonderful. What a what an amazing story. But that was my introduction to, my introduction to archaeological fieldwork. Well, there <laughs> I you thought, go. This is great. This is yeah, we've laid, we've laid the groundwork. I think we've <laughs> used up the first bit of our uh, segment. 
So in the next one, I think we're going to segue on over and talk about the uh, subject matter, the excavation and the objects and what they might tell us about the uh, nature of the life ways and the uh, theology of the indigenous mind. That sounds wonderful. See you on the flip-flop, gang. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome back, uh, you rock art podcasters. This is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel with uh, Rock Art Episode 70. We've got uh, Professor John Hoops. And he's talking about his adventure and journeys with uh, the Central Latin America, the, um, the area of far South America and the farthest Central America archaeological studies relating to uh, some of the ceremonial and ritual artifacts and also the indigenous theology. And with that, we can uh, kick this off. John. How are you? I'm, I'm good, Alan. Yeah. Tell us a bit about uh, this journey of yours. I saw that and I looked through the syllabus on shamanism and it was fabulous. Quite a tour de force. Well, thank you. It's a course that I really enjoy teaching. Of course, shamanism is about magic and magical objects and magical thoughts and magical activities. You know, you sort of have to believe in magic if you want to get into it. But there are different ways to look at it. Uh, of course, as anthropologists, we we talk about both emic and etic ways of looking at things. Emic being an insider's view, as as one might have from a magical practitioner, and etic being more of an objective outsider's view. And I really try to understand both of those in my pursuit of trying to understand shamans and shamanism. I am not a shaman and never have been. I don't even play one on TV. <laughs> um, I've never practiced shamanism myself, nor do I aspire to. But it's something I've come to, to know and, and respect and also to consider to be a useful way of, uh, of gaining insight into these objects for which we don't have written records. We don't have Unlike as with uh, the Mayas or, or historical records, we don't have anybody writing about these objects to tell us what they are and how they were used. We really have to come at it from the perspective of, our, of archaeology. But also, and I think aficionados of rock art will appreciate this, we really have to stretch ourselves in terms of creative thinking as to what all of the possibilities are in terms of how one goes from human thought processes and human experiences to something that's actual a material object that you can literally put your hands on and, and, and feel and experience, and that communicated that tactile material experience to others. Absolutely. So tell us a bit about these objects, maybe paint us word pictures, and then give us a sense of some of the challenges that you've dealt with and the discoveries you've made in working with archaeology and trying to perhaps, I would call it, reconstruct maybe indigenous theology and both uh, from a contemporary standpoint and going back in time. How's that? That's quite a, a mouthful, don't you think, John? 
Yes, but we, we tackle these big things every once in a while, and I certainly have thought about them quite a lot in this work that I've been doing on the collections at Dumbarton Oaks, which are basically, I mean, this is a program about rock art, and uh, what we're talking about are, are rocks. <laughs> they're, they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're special rocks, but jadeite is a, is a rock. And this may sound kind of odd to people, but it's also true. Gold is a kind of rock. Uh, when it occurs in placer deposits, and and it's it's a it's a mineral, rocks and minerals, but it's a natural object. It's something that people encountered uh, in stream beds. Uh, they encountered it in erosional deposits. They they were able to pan for it and collect it that way. But we're really talking about rocks and minerals here. And among the things that make jadeite and gold interesting for ancient peoples as well as for us is this quality of shininess. Hmm. They they capture light and reflect it in really interesting ways. And there are lots of things that do that, of course, uh, shiny surfaces of the water, shiny shells of insects, a whole host of things are very bright, but these are things that are consistently bright and shiny and that reflect the sun and the sunlight. So it really kind of boils down to being interested in shiny rocks and how it was that people, people looked at them. And this is something that if you think about it can help you get into the, the, the emic perspective, the minds of the people who are making and utilizing these materials. And that is that humans have the capability increasing the shininess of something. And that sounds like a, a kind of a basic concept, but I think that that was a, a very big part of what was being done in the working of objects made out of jadeite and the working of objects that were made out of gold. Uh, both of which were very highly valued in, in Mesoamerica and in this part of the Americas where I work, which I refer to as the Istmo Colombian area. As you probably know, for the Aztecs, jadeite was the most precious material, much more precious than gold, which the, um, the, the Aztecs themselves referred to as shit of the gods. That was literally how they referred to it. Gold was, gold was the ex- ex- excrement of the gods. Oh, my word. Okay. But jadeite was what they really most valued and and decorated their statues with. But in thinking about polished jadeite and the polishing of stones, I feel like I've gained some insights into how it was that the indigenous people of of the Ismo Colombian area thought. And that was that increasing shininess and increasing smoothness imbued a material object with a greater amount of power, uh, if, if we want to use a term like mana or something like that. And I think that what they were doing is that they observed natural processes, such as in Costa Rica, for example, you have rivers that flow down from the sides of volcanoes. And if you're familiar with volcanic rocks, they're incredibly coarse and rough. You don't ever want to be walking barefoot across lava. It will cut your feet apart. But when those same lava rocks are tumbled in a high-velocity river, they become rolled and they become smooth. Eventually, they'll become almost shiny, depending on how polished they get. And quite frankly, that is the accumulation of the energy of the water and the earth and of motion and of gravity and all of those types of things that are resulting in something that's very smooth. And I think that when people picked up pieces of jadeite and continued to polish and smooth them, they saw themselves as extending this same natural, magical, transformational process so that a polished jadeite celt, especially if worn as a pendant, was representative 
of the accumulation of all of these actions, but also displayed this, this accumulated power, uh, something that had intensified this object uh, over time. And that may have been one of the things that gave jadeite its, its tremendous value, is that it could take a polish and it could, could become very, very shiny. And then it retained that because it's such a hard material, has on the Mohs scale between seven and eight, that you could do a lot of stuff with it and it would still contain that brightness, that shininess. In fact, that's one of the wonderful things about jadeite artifacts is you can bury them in the ground for centuries and they're very bright when you excavate them. They're very smooth. They retain that quality. And of course, gold is that same way. Gold is, is a non-reactive, relatively non-reactive metal. So it retains its brightness and its shininess over time. And I really think that this is one of those qualities that helps us to understand why these particular materials were so important in the context of, of, of cultures in which uh, shamanism and the manipulation of of objects and of light and of other types of qualities was so important. Well, that's fascinating. I, I hadn't thought about that way of, of thinking about the manipulation and the sort of development and the technological realm for both gold and jadeite. Well, one of the um, among the objects that I'm especially fascinated by uh, that, that's, that many of your listeners may be familiar with are, are these uh, colossal stone spheres of Costa Rica. Do you know okay. what I'm talking about? I think I do indeed. Uh, yes, they're huge gabbro boulders that have been shaped into almost perfectly spherical form. I've seen them. Yes, uh, they were I've probably very them. highly polished when they were complete, mm-hmm. uh, and they're about 300 of them or more that are known from from Costa Rica. And uh, I was part of a UNESCO team that evaluated sites with stone spheres. And in 2014, they actually were were listed on on the UNESCO World Heritage uh, site. You know, we spent a lot of time talking about these spheres. And I realized that a polished sphere is is almost like the, the, the most logical outcome that one could have from continuously shaping and polishing a hard stone. You ultimately arrive at a polished sphere. And I sort of realized that there was a continuity between the polished jadeite celts and the polished stone spheres, that they represented this long, long tradition of working and polishing shiny stones. And then, of course, gold objects, which are shiny and reflective, are are an extension of that. So we can really think about all of these things in a, a very similar category. Yes, they have very different qualities, but but this this quality of of being able to be polished and to retain the, the luminescence, sort of the cultural yeah, residue of that polishing, that, that essence of that polishing is one of the things that makes them such, such amazing objects, which we, not even being in that culture, can look at today and be impressed by. We appreciate they're aesthetically pleasing. And as you're probing the sort of the theological meaning of these, I'm beginning to get a sense of sort of this capture of power, but this capture of light and this tremendous effort at sort of producing something that's aesthetically pleasing, but also engaged in some sort of a tremendous religiosity, but also powerfulness, almost like, uh, you know, when we think about water moving and how it, as you were saying, how it rounds and scours, rounds and scours and flutes. Yes, go ahead. Yes, well, and, but but something else to think about. I mean, and yes, the water the water does that, and and it's possible to observe that, especially season after season. 
But something else that is part of a native perspective is that the repetition of something intensifies it. For example, if you're listening to drumming, the more drumming happens, if, and it can often, a drum session can go in some cases for hours, the, the more repetitive activity that takes place, the greater the amount of accumulated power that has occurred. The more often a chant is repeated, or the more often that dance steps are taken, uh, this notion of repetition being equivalent to intensification is something that can be captured in a material object when what's repetitive is the shaping and the polishing of something so that you see that accumulation, uh, that literally accumulation of, of energy in the object from that repeated, that repeated uh, uh, activity. And for me, one of the best analogies for this is the chanting of a mantra by a, by a Buddhist monk. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the mullah, or the sometimes referred to as a rosary, right. uh, which has 108 beads on it for the repetition of a mantra like Om Mane Padme Hum. Mm-hmm. And then doing that, the more you do that, and actually these mullahs have counters on them. So you do it 108 times and you count, okay, that's one cycle. You do it again, you do it again, and then soon you have 108 cycles of 108 mantras. And, and the more you have chanted this mantra, the more you've said it over and over again, the, the more that power of meditation has, has, has increased in merit. And I think that might be an analogy to what's going on in terms of working and polishing uh, these, these stones. And of course, this same type of working and polishing and shaping uh, happens in the realm of rock art as well. Now, absolutely, I don't know whether rock art specialists would look at these colossal stone spheres as rock art, yes. uh, but but it, it's sort of what happens when every inch of the surface of a boulder has been smoothed and shaped in into completion. No, it's 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 fascinating. It makes me think about a lot of the rock art I've seen, the ancient rock art, and the the more recent rock art as well that has been repacked or incised very heavily. And the repetition of that incising or that almost, almost it gets a sculptural kind of a sense and you'll see that. And it it is re-inaugurating the power, but it's also uh, working the stone and in, in that repetition, in that effort, in that rounding or grinding away, producing something that is analogous to the kind of etiology, the kind of theology that you've, you're alluding to, and the metaphor embedded in the action, correct? Well, and in our own culture, think about, think about the power of visiting a, a medieval cathedral, okay. where you can see when you look down the middle of those marble steps that lead up to the sanctuary, that they have been worn and, and, and are scalloped from the footsteps of thousands and thousands and thousands of, 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 of visitors. That's the kind of accumulation that I'm, that I'm talking about. <laughs> when you look at that and you say, oh, man, somebody didn't polish these steps to make those, those, those scallops. Those are, those are from people walking uh, over and over and over exactly. and over and over and over again. And, and I think go, that Native people perceived that uh, and, and, re- and revered that. I think they do. If you go to a particular canyon, been studying, it's a public canyon, it's called Little Petroglyph Canyon in the Coso Range. There is thousands and thousands of images in about a mile period 
and it's in a conduit, it's in a canyon, so it's hidden. And that kind of replication, that kind of activity, concentrated activity in one particular area, I would think creates this power, this theological vortex or nexus that we're talking about, doesn't it? I think it very much does. And I think sacred places are recognized for having that quality. Well, I think we'll stop here and talk about some of those theological issues in the uh, final segment. Thanks, gang. See you on the flip-flop. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Okay, gang, it's Dr. Alan Garfinkel here. And we're honored and blessed to have John Hoops, professor, University of Kansas, talking about his uh, experience and expertise in all things related to the far Latin America and South American realm, both the archaeology, the ethnography, the uh, remarkable realm of theology. And I think in this uh, final segment, we're going to do a bit of uh, talking about the repertoire of animals that appear in both the artifacts themselves and in the uh, consciousness of the theological metaphors for this culture. John, shall we uh, kick it off? And I'm, I'm honored to have you on board. Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. It's, it's so, so, so nice to be talking about these things, Alan. So thank you so much for giving me a context to, to do that. The issue, the issue of the animals, actually one of the first things I, I need to say is that we are animals. So we're going to be talking about not only humans, but also non-human animals. That, that's sometimes cumbersome to say. But I think within the worldview and cosmology of indigenous peoples, it's important to recognize that humanness, personhood, is something that's viewed in a different way. So that personhood is extended to persons with wings, persons with fins, persons with two legs, and persons with four legs. And so this distinction between humans and animals that we fall into so neatly in our Western theology is not something that was shared by indigenous peoples of the Americas. And I think that probably one of the reasons it, it wasn't was simply because domesticated animals, sheep, goats, cattle, pigs, and the like, were so much a part of the daily life of people of the ancient Middle East and, and, and Europe. But there were relatively few domesticated animals in the Americas. And so the con concept of, of herd animals or beasts of burden or those types of things, that, that's a European introduction. And that, I think, is important to keep in mind when approaching questions of sort of theology, which, of course, is, is about deities and, and, and divinity, and the recognition of the identities of 
personhood uh, and non, non-human animals in, in the natural world. Of the objects that we've been talking about, the, the jadeite and gold objects from the Istmo Colombian area, which is this area between uh, Honduras and northern Colombia, uh, sort of sits between Mesoamerica and, and South America and intersects simultaneously with Mesoamerica, the Antilles, Amazonia, and the Andes. So I, I tend to like to think of it as the center of the Americas that's really touching, touching on all of these other places. Is, is the way that people found particular animals good to think. And among the earliest representations that we have are those of birds. And representations of birds are, are ubiquitous from the jadeite objects all the way up to gold objects. And in fact, uh, the Spanish remarked on what they called aguilas or eagles that were gold eagles that were worn by uh, the leaders uh, they encountered, the indigenous leaders that they encountered. This was a 2,000-year tradition of decorating oneself with images of, of birds. Well, why are birds so, so important? Why are birds so, so critical? Well, I think part of it is recognizing that powerful individuals, shamans in particular, if you want to use that term, although we can, we can unpack that a bit, but individuals who had magical abilities could also be birds, and they, and they, could, they could fly in the air. They could perch in a tree. And part of this cosmology, interestingly, has to do with control and has to do with knowledge. And, you know, one of the things that birds are in, in the natural world, uh, and especially in places like Central America and Northern South America, they're ubiquitous. They're everywhere. There's always a bird that you can see someplace. And we have an expression in English that we use where, uh, you know, somebody knows something and you don't know how they found it out. And they say, well, a little bird told me. <laughs> well, I think something similar was happening in indigenous practices in that the shaman might know something that he wasn't supposed to know or she wasn't supposed to know. And you sort of wonder, how, how did they know that? How did they find out that information? Well, a very simple explanation is that they were transformed into a bird and they saw it happen because they were sitting in the tree or flying overhead. How did you know that? Oh, do you remember that eagle that was in the sky? Oh, yeah. Well, that was me. I was watching you. <laughs> and the idea of birds being associated with surveillance and with knowledge may be one of the reasons why they're selected early on uh, as symbols of those people who are all-seeing, all-knowing, or at least have deeper insight and deeper knowledge than, than other people do. How did the indigenous people recognize birds and think about birds? Were they particular uh, super mundane beings? Was there associated qualities about only certain birds that were depicted? A- absolutely. There were, there were very particular birds that, that they tended to focus on because of what their qualities were. Among the most important birds was the harpy eagle, which was the principal alpha predator of the sky. Harpy eagles are large enough to carry off monkeys. I don't think they could carry off a small child, although people sometimes worry about that. But they are very, you know, very, very devastating predators with huge, huge talons and sharp beaks, and, and, and they can be quite dangerous. Another category of birds that they frequently represented were vultures, which are associated with the transition from life into death because, of course, they can detect death. They smell death. They go after dead things, and then they eat them. 
uh, and a vulture disposes of carrion and disposes of the dead. So vultures were a very important bird. Another important bird was the toucan, which has a very long beak. And people often associate, you know, toucans with toucan Sam and, 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 and breakfast cereal and things like that. But the reality is that toucans are very aggressive birds wow. and they're predatorial birds. They will destroy the, the nests of other birds and they will attack the young and eat the, the young of other birds. They're carnivorous birds. Toucans are not, not really very nice birds, but they're beautiful. And, and they're also something you can spot very easily because of their bright yellow colored beaks. And then another category of birds that was often represented are these kind of magical little tiny birds or hummingbirds. And there's a huge variety of hummingbirds in the Isthmus Colombian area. And, uh, you know, you don't have to watch a hummingbird for very long to realize just how magical that creature is. There's a reason why Aztecs picked uh, Huitzilopochtli as, as this hummingbird deity. But I would say those are probably the main, the most important and, and most frequently represented birds would be, would be the, the, the harpy eagle, the vulture, the toucan, and the hummingbird. So those birds make a lot of sense to me in terms of being predators and also involved with civil life death experience, as well as being you know, some of the most magical or supernatural or exotic of the bird kingdom. What other animals are part and parcel of that repertoire? Well, I would say after, after birds, the other important category is, is reptiles. Mm-hmm. And in particular, iguanas, crocodiles, and caimans, who are just as the harpy eagle is the alpha predator of the air, the crocodile is the alpha predator of brackish and freshwater uh, places. Now, yet another important predator is the shark, and there are representations of sharks, but that's a saltwater predator. But the, the inshore and, and, and most commonly encountered predators were the ones of lakes uh, and deltas and coastlines, and, and those included the crocodile. So crocodiles were very fearsome, very uh, uh, powerful animals, and of course, grow to enormous sizes. And so that, those are also ones that we find represented more often in, well, actually, we have some examples of crocodiles in, in jade work. We also have examples of crocodiles in gold work. Fascinating. Another dimension to both of these, Alan, which I think merits some attention, is the fact that we also find uh, what I refer to as therianthropic beings, that is, beings that are part animal, part human, mm-hmm. that will have a bird's head and a human body, or that will have a crocodile head and a human body. And this is a way of visually representing the fact that humans can transform into these creatures. And, uh, you know, there, there are stories that abound in Amazonia and Central America alike, where the person who's the shaman or the sorcerer is found to have been wounded and someone invariably comes up with the story, well, yes, I, I shot a jaguar last night. And, and the, the shaman or sorcerer will say, that oh, was me. That, that was me. Or someone will identify it as that, that being him. That the idea that, that, that humans can transform into non-human animals and move in the forest or swim in the water or fly in the air or do these other types of things, they were sort of like the indigenous superheroes of the ancient world. Now... Within the oral traditions, the sacred narratives, I don't like to use the term mythology, but those types of stories that, that try to characterize the theological realm, the cosmology of the people, are there 
these animal human super mundane persons sometimes we have stories stories of women being impregnated by snakes and giving birth to snakes we have stories of shamans uh, transforming into jaguars or sometimes we have stories of parts of shamans being transformed into jaguars. There's a very famous or very well-known Bribri story that comes from Costa Rica about a shaman who was killed and the people who killed him took his head and were carrying it home with them when the head begins biting people. And then they, to keep it from biting people, they sort of put it in a, in a safe place. And at night it turns into a huge jaguar, then breaks out of its enclosure and, and eats people. So, yes, there are stories that refer to this therianthropic transformation. And I like to point out that they have parallels in Western stories as well. You know, Dracula can be turn into a bat. The werewolf is a man who turns into a wolf. Uh, these ideas about humans turning into animals is something that we still, and I talk, to super, I talk about superhero, think about Spider-Man. Think about Batman, yeah. this, this idea of humans with, with animal qualities, non-human animal qualities is something that still persists in our own stories today. It does, doesn't it? And it, it seems to capture the imagination of quite a plethora of viewers and, and others. And certainly the magical realm, as you keep alluding to, the wizardry and the, the shamanism is something that you've talked about. And I guess bringing us full circle, you were mentioning that even in contemporary culture, there is a fascination, if not an obsession, with this kind of, of dealing. Maybe you can allude to that to some extent. Yes, I think it's very much a part of our contemporary culture. These are not things that were done only by indigenous people. There has been a t- tremendous fascination in magic and in shamanism and in healing And these are things that I found especially intriguing, in part through some of my own personal experiences and and research, including visits to the Burning Man Festival in the early 2000s, where, in fact, there's a lot of contemporary shamanism that takes place in terms of ecstatic dance, the use of uh, psychotropic substances, uh, the creation of ritual spaces in which unusual things can occur, and unusual connections are made, resulting in tremendous insight and creativity. And so I think that shamanism is still very much with us. And I think anyone who likes to have little magical objects, whether they be kaleidoscopes or crystals or whatever, will be able to relate to the fact that these objects that were being made by ancient people uh, probably were, were, were being used in, in, in fashions that are, that are similar, not the same, but quite similar to the way that that we use objects in order to, to manipulate our own experiences into ones that are departing from what our normal everyday experiences are. That, that seeking of a magical experience, whether through objects or through ecstatic dance or through chants or trance or the use of psychotropic substances are very much a part of this pursuit of uh, something that is more than what our normal everyday existence is. And it seems as though the interface between science and religion are becoming more and more of an interconnected thread. And especially when it comes to the medicinal side, uh, understanding of the use of shamanism and psychotropic substances to heal and alter someone's physiology and health has been uh, found to be quite a remarkable platform or 
you know, a, a medicinal realm. And this is becoming more and more accepted by the medical profession. I'm sure you found something along those lines as well. Yes, of course. And I think it's also something that resonates quite well with the whole theme of rock art, which is the context in, in which we're discussing all of this. Definitely. Um, is that rock art, whether it, appear, whether it appears in, in, in caves or whether it appears in special places on large boulders in waterfalls or, or in deserts or wherever, is, is created for the purpose of generating this non-normal sense of awe. This, this sense of the presence of something unusual that's inspiring, or this contact with the ancient, this contact with something primordial, this contact with the people who were here hundreds or thousands of years ago is all a part of, I think, how some of this rock art is created in, in the first place. And something that we haven't talked about that uh, I really would like to encourage your listeners to pursue far further is that there's an enormous amount of rock art in the Istmo Colombian area, in Costa Rica, in Panama, in Colombia. And it really deserves much more attention than it's received, especially because we can contextualize it now within a much deeper understanding of the cultures that would have made and used it. Well, thank you so much. We've run out of time. We've just scratched the surface, if you use a rock art <laughs> analogy. And John, you've been an incredible resource and your reflections have resonated with me at, at various levels. So I uh, hope we can have you on again and we can continue this discussion further. Well, that's about it for today. Thank you. See you next week, all you rock art podcasters. See you on the flip-flop. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Come.